My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Hannigan. He is a data literacy expert and the author of Turning Data into Wisdom, How We Can Collaborate with Data to Change Ourselves, Our Organizations, and Even the World. He is a senior leader who likes to use data and analytics to transform, innovate, and continuously improve organizations to make them the best they can be. His passion is the intersection of business, technology, learning, and psychology. Through many years of working in a variety of businesses and industries, Kevin has been able to leverage technology and psychology along with data and analytics to improve organizational performance and transform businesses into high-performing organizations. Kevin frequently speaks and writes on topics of data-informed decision-making, the future of learning, and growth mindset. So we're going to dig into this, and um, yeah, this is this is going to be a great conversation. Thank you very much, Kevin, for coming on, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about your book and, and your experience. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this one for sure. So, um, well, let's start off with, you know, where you were born and raised and, and you know, maybe some of your early influences that maybe, or maybe not, uh, but set you on this trajectory and, yeah. and really developed this passion. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting path, that's for sure. So, um, born and lived my whole life other than college in in Massachusetts. So, no haters out there if they're Patriots fans or Red Sox fans. That that's me, unfortunately, um, or fortunately. Um, but I went to school actually as a technical geek. I was a math major with statistics and a computer science major. Um, and back then, I, I liked it. I love technology. I love innovation. I started realizing early on in my career, like right when I got out of university, that technology continues to evolve and evolve and evolve. And I, I always say this joke, like when I was in college, cloud was a meteorology class. Now it's an IT course. Like it's really hard to keep up. So I started going back to school at night, taking like continuing education courses. And I just wasn't internalizing what was being taught. I, I wasn't catching on it. And so I'd start, you know, doing some research online and understanding. And, what I realized was a lot of it was partly because it was being taught wrong. Part of it was because we're changing so fast as a world. We don't always, our brain doesn't forget everything that happened before. It, it stays in your brain. You have to kind of unlearn it. And so it put me down this path of learning about like psychology, decision-making. Um, I have four kids now. The, the oldest one has special needs. And this was kind of the, the, the icing on the cake is once they were uh, you know able to speak and stuff I, they would say things where i'm like where did that come from like i that that doesn't seem rational to me and and so i started doing a lot of research on what's rational what's logical and it really opened my eyes that uh, my thoughts and beliefs are based off of my experiences he has a different experience he's going to have different thoughts and beliefs you're going to have a different background and what was really eye-opening to me was 
most of the time he was right. He, he was more right than I was. And it was kind of a reality of check is like, wow. So working in technology, working in data, working in analytics, it kind of is the exact same thing I was going on with my son is everyone wants to use data to say, we, we did our investment this year and here's our return on investment. And so they showed data all over the, it's everywhere. And, uh, you know, the intro sounded really complicated. It sounded technical. When I say data, it, it's not just numbers. It's like, it's, you know, did someone leave a good review on your Amazon account? Did someone, you know, what's the weather report? It's all data, it's information. And people will use information, but because the world's changing so fast, because there's so much of it, they don't check that the information ha doesn't have a different meaning. Just like I didn't, I, when my son would say something, I'm like, oh, he's wrong, that's crazy. I have the right answer. People will do that all the time and it leads them not only to make less than ideal decisions, it leads them to make tragic decisions in work, but you know, also in life. And so it, it just put me on this mission of how do we educate people, how to use what I call like forever skills or soft skills to make sure you're seeing the information and the data in the fullest perspective to really say what it means, because it means different things to different people um, at different points in time. I'm curious, the, the path that you took from high school to college to, you know, your professional uh, career, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe as some of your education and then your your experience because you've applied your experience in the professional world to understand more of your children's uh mindset and psychology so i'm i'm curious exactly. about that. yeah and i'll start at the end i'll say one thing i recommend to anyone in the business anyone interacting people which is like everyone is is take a few classes on psychology if you can really understand why people think the way they think, you're going to be so much better off. So like I said, uh, undergraduate degree, bachelor of science and computer science and math, very technical, worked on computer programming when I first got out of college, was doing software engineering. But with that concept where I said, like, I, I want to learn more things, I started going back to school to do web design. Um, and I started building out websites. I'm dating myself, but this is when the internet just started. So like websites were like HTML 4.0. It was, it, it was very up and coming. And so I started figuring, okay, well, I can do some of that stuff on the side, but it's when I started realizing people learn differently and I need to kind of unlearn these things. Um, I went back to school for adult learning, basically instructional design and, and have a master's in that. And the, the background there is as adults we learn differently than kids. And so you can have an education degree, but if it's for you know elementary school, you're teaching in a different way because kids are like a blank canvas. There's a different set of degrees for when you're teaching adults because we don't have a blank canvas. We're very opinionated. We have lots of life experience. And so we have to educate by bringing that life experience back into the picture, reflect on it, and then apply on top of it. So it was a whole master's program on how can adults learn better, um, learn better skills? And it wasn't until, and that lasted me, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years after my undergrad. It wasn't until I had my first son, which was probably, yeah, maybe 10 years after my undergrad that I started saying, I need to learn psychology because I have no idea what's going on over here. It's like, it didn't seem rational and, and it was rational, but it was just different. 
just like, you know, maybe not the best analogy, but someone, it, the neighbor is Spanish, you want to learn Spanish, you go back to school. Well, my neighbor, you know, had autism and I didn't speak it and I didn't understand it. So I needed to go back to school and learn about it. And I think psychology is a great way to do that because I learned about things like rational thinking. I learned about how they're black and white. So there is no room for interpreting. It's a, it's a very low context culture. When you say something like, you know, I'm going to run up the stairs, they literally think you're running up the stairs and will say, don't do that. You'll get hurt. Why don't you walk up the stairs? And it just totally different mindset. When all of those things came together, I felt like there was this big light bulb over my head that was like, this isn't about me and my son. This is about everyone in today's world being overloaded with information on the news outlets, on the websites, on in, in how do we process that and make meaning from it? Um, knowing that our brains, you know, are flawed, right? We have bias. We look for things that validate our opinion. We don't look to challenge it. And it just, be, ever since then, it's become kind of my, my, my go-to is I want to educate people that there is value out there, but you have to do it the right way. Otherwise, it's going to cause some potentially unintended consequences. Yeah, you've said several things that I want to dig into. So like understanding how the brain makes decisions, you know, the how the brain processes information, the implicit bias that you just touched on, because, you know, we all, you know, through our life's experiences and just, you know, whatever culture that we grow up in, the the things that we hear adults say as we're growing up. And, you know, we end up without, I mean, sometimes without really recognizing that we're stereotyping people, stereotyping people. And, and so I'm, I'm curious how you've dug into this and, and how you explain it in your book and can can you dig into yeah, that a little I'll, bit? Absolutely. And, and I'll start with a personal story to, to highlight that, because I think one of the challenges we have is a lot of people will say, I don't have bias. Everyone has bias. And that's why it's important to know the brain works. And so I'll give a personal story is, you know, when I was growing up and younger, the the neighbor was always a troublemaker and would always shoot like BB guns and, and everyone was like, stay away. And, and they had red hair. And so my whole, not even knowing it, right? I'm like, okay, there's a red hair, I'm gonna stay away. Um, my third born came out with flaming orange hair. Like it was the doctors, I've never seen so much orange hair in my life. And obviously he's a good kid. And I was like, wait a second, why am I looking at it? Like, oh, it, it's because my perceptions of the kid when I was growing up were negative. They were in my brain, unconsciously my brain sees it. it and it's saying, okay, you had this response back then, you're gonna have this response now. Clearly it was misguided response, but th I think that's the other thing people need to remember about stereotypes and biases. We don't, it, I don't wanna say it's not our fault. It's not intentional. Like people have them, it, it, even if we're aware we have them, it doesn't mean we're bad people. It's how the brain works. What, what we wanna to try to do is how do we act knowing that we have them? How do we try to mitigate them? And so that's where, you know, in one of the psychology courses, it talked about how the brain works. So the brain is a massive supercomputer. And every time you, the, the four senses, every time you're looking around all of these inputs, estimates say there's like millions of inputs you're getting every second. If the brain tried to process all of that consciously, it would overheat. You, you need to sleep 24 hours a day. 
Like it can't. So it has this kind of filtering system. It, it brings in stuff and it tries to say, okay, what's relevant for Kevin to know? And I'll store that and I'll process it. But relative to uh, important to know is subjective. So, you know, I stored, okay, BB guns, red hair, think of the brain as a database, redhead, BB gun, negative, negative emotion. Um, and so when you have new experiences coming in, the brain will unconsciously go back into its database and, and pull up these past experiences. But if it can't make a direct connection, like if there isn't an experience to rely on, it tries to make a connection. And one of the things that it tries to do is it tries to validate your opinion. So if I say, my answer is my third son is a redhead, redheads are trouble. It's going to try to go back in and find any data point that I maybe have in my long-term memory that validates redheads are trouble. It's not going to find the 20 times where a redhead opened the door for me or, you know, helped me out at the grocery store. It's just, it's flawed that way. It, it, it is what it is. I don't know if it's flawed or it's as designed. So knowing that you can't just believe what you think because you have to check it and say, okay, is that because I had a bad experience? If I had a bad experience over here, can I really say that over here, it's similar enough that I can expect a bad experience? And just the other thing on top of that, when the brain evolved, all we cared about was survival. Like, don't have the dinosaur eat me. Where's a cave? Where's my food? Where's my shelter? Nowadays, it's so complex and subtle that it's it's beyond survival. It's like, how do I get a promotion? How do I find you know a spouse? How do I do? And so it it makes it really hard for the brain to pull out the right answers for you without checking them and validating that you're not having this kind of bias. It's it's really hard to do that. And I guess the reason it opened my eyes is I I saw my son and the responses I was getting was completely contradictory to what was already in my brain. Um, but it wasn't irrational. It was just, those were his experiences. And like I said, most of the times I was the one that was biased, not him. It's really cool. Yeah. I, well, it's interesting hearing your perspective because I've had these conversations, you know, individuals that specialize in neuroscience and neurofeedback and, and, talking about the evolution of the brain and how, you know, the, the negativity bias type of thing. So, I mean, we can look at our experiences day in and day out and how we tend to recall that negative experience more than the positive, you know? Absolutely. Well, the brain, again, without going into too much nerves, the brains evolved over time. So, you know, we started out with like the emotional brain and that's the fight or flight that we run into. And it, it's not till we get later on um, into kind of that logic brain, but that's why emotions play a big factor in our decision-making and jumping to the, the mitigation. That's why when people say sleep on it, it, it's actually based in science, right? Is they want you to get out of that emotional part of your brain because it clouds your judgment. It, it makes you make decisions that are more based off of fear or like you said, anger and anxiety, some type of emotion as opposed to you know, weighing the cost benefit and, and making a rational decision. Now, one of the things that you, you talk about is data literacy. H how is what we're just talking about, you know, this, these biases that is really, you know, evolution or the evolutionary development of our, our brain, um, 
and really being able to have this data literacy to help us in our decision-making process. I mean, I feel like there's just a pretty clear connection there between those. Absolutely. In data literacy, for anyone that's not too familiar, it's a, it's a buzzword. And sometimes it comes off as technical, like data literacy is not data science. You don't need to be a statistician. The, probably the highest, most general level definition I could say is it's how do you use critical thinking with data so that you don't come up with the, the, the wrong outcome? One of the more technical, longer definitions say, how do you read, work with, and challenge data? And what they mean by challenge is talking about what we just did with the brain. So you're in a business meeting and you go into it saying, okay, I have to save my, my team. Our sales are dropping. We might have layoffs. I need to figure out what's going on. And someone in another team presents a spreadsheet and it shows a data point that says, well, lead generation is down 20%. Instantly we're saying, okay, it's not our fault. It's their fault. The, the reason we're down is because there's no leads. It's their fault. And that happens time and time of day in life. It happens in business and it's called confirmation bias. It's you look for the data that validates your opinion but you think about the the sciences that that really go at it structured, like you know a a, a research um, scientist. They use the um, scientific method. Let's have a hypothesis, and then what we do is we do everything under our power to try to invalidate the hypothesis. When we can't, we'll assume it's true. In business, because of these biases, we do the complete opposite. Here's our opinion. Let me find one data point that loosely looks like this is the answer that validates my opinion. Let me stop looking for anything else and let me shout to the world, this is my answer, here's the data. Even though that data is probably misleading, it's probably another cause that caused it, it's probably missing the context. We just say, stop, here's the answer, let's move on. Um, data literacy is how do we check that so that we don't move on, we say, okay, this looks like this, but let me challenge it. In what situation could leads be down, but it be but our sales be down unrelated to it? In what situation is that completely irrelevant to our situation? And we just don't do that sometimes because we're not aware. Sometimes life goes so fast, we say we don't have time. You know, we have to make decisions like yesterday. And um, that's what data literacy is. It's stopping thinking and using critical thinking skills, which Quite honestly, I don't want to go on a tangent. We don't teach in schools anymore, and we don't learn and work. We kind of do the opposite. We kind of suppress those skills. I mean, there's a clear correlation between you know how people you know operate in the business world and the importance of data, but in our personal lives, can you talk about how we can utilize data to improve our personal lives? Yeah, so many. I mean, there one level of like, just think about where am I going to go on vacation, right? You you look at, I'll look at Airbnb reviews, data. You look at, you know, pictures, data. Um, COVID is a unfortunate pandemic, but so many things we can learn from it. How many people during COVID said to their significant other or friends, you know, I, I want to go to on vacation or I want to go to work or I want to go to this concert. I don't know if it's safe. And obviously safe is not a scientific word, right? There's always risk, but 
data literacy helps us understand what are we really trying to get out of it. So someone who's data literate might say, okay, I want to know if I can go to this concert and there's a very low risk that myself or anyone in my family will get seriously ill and get hospitalized. Okay, that's more specific. Then in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw 20 different charts that would show like the curve and everyone freaks out because it's going up. No one knew what those meant. No one challenged them. There was never a chart really that actually said, you know, most of the charts would show exponential going up and the title would be um, cases, COVID cases. Well, it's not COVID cases because we weren't testing everyone. It, it's only positive test results, which is very different than COVID cases. So answering your question in personal life, you're exposed to this level of overload and confusion every day. You don't need to be a mathematician. You don't need to be a biologist to know COVID. You need to be data literate to challenge, what does that visualization mean? Like, look at the title, what does cases mean? In which situation would the curve be misleading? Is it maybe because we're not testing everyone? Is it because we're only testing the elderly and the first responders? Or go back to the vacation example, what are my goals? Do I wanna be walking distance to a beach? Do I wanna eat at a five-star resort every night? Do I wanna go to a amusement park? And then use that to challenge the data you're seeing, see the reviews and see all these different things. Um, I guess I'll just finally say, if you ever, another way to explain is if you ever go on Amazon and you don't buy a product because of review, there's usually when you scroll down someone that says, I don't know what that person was talking about in their review. They didn't read the user manual or they didn't read the description of what the product's gonna do. The product works great. They just didn't do their job. People who read that first review and didn't buy the product, they're not data literate. They didn't challenge it. They didn't understand how could this be wrong for this person, but right for everyone else? Well, it's wrong if they didn't read the directions. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that, uh, I mean, I, I've had this conversation with so many people when we're talking about leadership and, and team building and really the importance of communication when developing trust within a team or within a, an organization, within a family, you know, and when you talk about communication, you have to discuss listening. And I, I, you talk about, you know, the difference between active and passive listening. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back again to the concept of the brain and who we are. We're, we're perfect and we're also very flawed at the same time. But when most people have an opinion going into a meeting, and that meeting could be a work meeting or it could be you and your spouse are talking about what, you know, what are we going to do for dinner? Where are we going? What, what school are we going to put the kids in? When you have an opinion, our first thought, kind of that survival mechanism, is when someone else is talking to us, we're not listening to what they're saying. What we're actually doing is we're thinking about how are we going to rebut what they're saying? What is our next move? We're not listening. Active listening basically means don't use any brainwaves. Just stop. Don't think about anything consciously and listen to what they're saying. How many times have you been in a meeting where you're talking and then someone asks a question that either you just answered or is completely out of left field? You're like, were they just paying attention? Like it happens to me every day. And 
And that's the difference is passive listening is you're maybe making eye contact, but you're daydreaming. You're thinking, and you're specifically daydreaming about how am I going to prove this guy wrong? How am I going to get my point over? Is this guy going to stop talking so I can get my two minutes of fame? Whereas active listening, the brainwaves, you're just listening. And it's hard. We don't, we're not set up to do that. And I think one of the reasons it's hard, and we talk about this in the book, is I, have you ever taken a course in listening, right? We, it's probably the most used communication skill out of all of them. We take tons of courses on reading. We take tons of courses on writing. We don't take any courses on listening. But it's probably the most important one. Because like we said, if you don't listen, you don't get the other perspectives. I'm still going to think redheads are troublemakers. I'm still going to think that COVID cases are exponentially growing. It, it, it all relates to how you listen to other people. And I can think of two perfect examples at the beginning of our conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I only recognize it after the fact where you're talking about being from Massachusetts and I'm like, yeah, my cousin's from West Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> well, they're New England small. They're close enough. That was my angle. It's, it's within an hour. It's close enough. Oh, well, the reality is I heard you say Boston. My my cousin and her family visit Boston quite often. I just saw pictures of them in Boston, and I automatically you said Boston. I'm like, yeah, that's right where my cousin is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the information bias, where you uh, were not information bias, but the I was not active listening. You know, I heard you talk about the beginning of your life, but you went faster than I was registering you started talking about your education and your all that and and then i asked you right after can you talk a little bit about your education and, well and that's a good example because it's a two-way street right so you know there's a balance on my side of how fast do i talk to to get information out and show the passion while still you know not being like wow is there a rewind button or a slow down button because everyone talks fast, everyone moves at the speed. And, and so it, it's, a, it's a good call out for everyone is you need to share information slower and throwing my learning hat on. That's why one of the things about adult learning is they call it scaffolding and, and re replications. You do it multiple times because it's not going to sink in the first time because you're not actively listening. It, it's going to sink in the second, third and fourth time. When it's going to sink in the first time is if my answer is 100% relevant to what you need at the moment which almost never happens. You know, on, on the inverse of that, you know, speaking fast, but speaking too slow is a thing. I, I'm guilty of that, you know, early on in my childhood, I stuttered and the doctor told my mother, well, just put them outside with the other kids. They'll make fun of them and he'll eventually stop stuttering. Yeah. And, what ended up happening is I quit talking. And then when I did talk, I just spoke so slowly that I might as well have been stuttering. Um, but it it is something that I have to consciously work on even today. You know, when I when I'm editing the these interviews, sometimes I'm like, gosh, man, you need to hurry up with this question and this line of thinking, you know, and and I, I can, well, I've heard it, 
most of my adult life, like people are going, yeah, you need to pick up the pace here, Speedy, you know, and yeah, and I'm sorry you go through that because I, I, I hear what they're saying. I, I only disagree because I have experience not with the stuttering, but, you know, people process differently. It's not just about the output. It's about the input. It's about the listening is like my wife is great. She can think of like the one liners on her feet, like we're on a school meeting and like she'll just come right back at the teachers. And I'm like, I wish I thought of that. I, I can't do that. I need to process for a while. And then I'll wake up at night. I'm like, oh, I wish I said that. Um, so, you know, taking your time to reply is just like taking your time to process. You want to have that level of, OK, I have enough info to go back. It, it's not a bad thing, but it's unfortunate that people think it's a negative thing. Well, in, even in the world of, of public speaking, when people are listening to someone talk about a particular subject, if you don't have the right rhythm and yep. if you if the pauses are too long, you'll lose people's attention. They'll start thinking about what they're going to have for lunch, you know? And, yep. and so there is that responsibility of the speaker as well as the responsibility of the listener, you know, the active listening piece and making sure that you're not tuning out, that you are listening to what the person is saying. Absolutely. It's a good point. And for people communicating with data and decisions, same thing, right? It's on us to make sure we're using the right fluid motion and cadence so that they don't daydream. Now, who is your book for? Who, who did you write your book for? Yeah, it's a loaded question because I would say I wrote the book for myself, but that's not obviously the marketing answer, right? Because there's only <laughs> one of me. Um, I I struggled between, is it, a, is it a textbook for people learning about data analytics? Probably not because it talks more about like these soft skills and literacy. Is it a leadership book? Maybe, but it, it's a bit... It, Everyone makes decisions. That's the key thing is it's not just strategic decisions. It's any decision you have to make. So then I went to the complete other extreme and I said, it's anyone who ever thinks they make less than ideal decisions because they get overloaded with information and they tend to make snap judgments and they tend to think and respond emotionally. That's who it's for. Um, and the feedback that I've gotten is, is people that are open to saying we have a bias, we're flawed, have learned from it. There are some people that still think it's voodoo magic and, you know, we're, we're doing like mythic spells about how do you unbias the brain. It, it, it takes the right growth mindset, basically, to, to be open to it. Can you, can you talk a little more about the, the content? within your book and how you teach people to implement the, this process of you know, yep. utilizing data to, to gain wisdom. Yeah, so we, we start out, again, going back to trying to keep people's attention and keep them engaged. When, when we're doing lectures and stuff and workshops, I always start with like quiz questions to get the brains thinking. You can't do that in a book. So in the book, we start out with the brain's flawed. Here's how the brain makes decisions because I want people to read it and say, oh, wow. Okay. I have some professional development I can do. I can learn about these things. 
And for those people that say, nope, my brain is not flawed, then they can just put the book down then. So weed them out early. After we kind of address that, then we go over, I call it a six step process for decision-making um, and just marketing, they all start with A's. So it's like ask, acquire, analyze, apply, announce, assess. And it goes through a, a set of steps that you can make. So the first one, ask. You wouldn't really think about it, but when you hear it, it's common sense. Many times we have like a genius answer, but we answered the wrong question. And it goes back to Moneyball, which is one of my best, inf earliest influencers, how everyone was focused on, well, the batter needs to be this size and they need to have this average. And Billy Bean's like, it's all about on-base percentage. Like to, that was kind of that perspective of people were trying to answer who's the best baseball player by saying who has the best batting average. It's the wrong question. It doesn't matter if you walk or hit, it's you get on first base. It's who has the best on-base percentage. So the whole first step is how do you turn a question into what I call an analytical question? So the example of COVID before, if you see a chart that says COVID cases this year, you would want to say, okay, that's not a good question. You can't answer that. Like, what does that mean? What's the time frame? What's the scope? You would turn it to what are the number of positive test cases in this area for this time period? And is it going up or down compared to last year? So you, you make sure you're asking the right question. You make sure you're framing the right question. You make sure you're acquiring the right data. That's kind of the next phase. A lot of people just look at like what's in my database. They don't look at reviews on Amazon or they don't ask their friends. Um, how do you then analyze it? And analyze it doesn't have to be statistics. It could be, you know, do you see more positive sentiment or negative sentiment? Um, and then you go to the apply phase. The apply phase is where I say you're using common sense. Um, you might go through this analysis and a famous example is there's a visualization that shows there's a correlation between shark attacks and people eating ice cream. So the more the people eat ice cream, the more they're gonna be shark attacks. The apply phase says, no, that's absurd. What's happening is more people eat ice cream in the summer and there's more people in the beach swimming at the summer unless you're one of those people that swims in New Year's, which are crazy, there, there's something else which is causing that. It's the weather, it's the temperature. The apply phase is, okay, think about that and don't just drive off the cliff because the GPS tells you to, you need to challenge it. Um, and then once you do that, it goes into change management. How do you um, announce this to all your stakeholders and how do you announce it in a way that they're actively listening for it? Um, and then finally you go to the assess phase, which continuous improvement. Like you said, it's not going to be perfect, but you're going to put something out there and then you're going to build on it over and over. What was the last A? Was it uh, assess? assess? Yeah. So going just a little deeper there, one of the things that a lot of people focus on in today's world is they focus on outcomes. And that sounds odd because everyone says in business, I don't care about the income, focus on the outcome. The outcome is customer success, revenue, whatever. The problem with that in decision-making is you could have a good outcome, even if your process is flawed by chance, you could have a horrible outcome. You could have a sound process, just something changed. So in decisions, you can't just say, okay, our decision was good. We made money. 
because if it's a flawed process, you're ignoring that. So in the assess phase, yeah, you want to look at the outcome. Did, did our vacation work? Did no one get in the hospital due to COVID? Did we make money on the stock we purchased? But you want to assess the process. What could we have done different? What questions could we have asked in hindsight that were helpful? And then feedback that into your process for the next time you do it. Most people don't do that. They just focus on the end goal. And if the end goal is the light turned green and we made money, they could care less if the pro they just assume the process was right. Most times it's not. It's it's you're going to get more bang for your buck if you incrementally evolve your process than if you just look at when your outcome was negative and why it was negative. And and it's got to be a continuous reevaluation of the data because as you improve the process, the data could change. You've got to collect that so that you can adjust your process accordingly. That's one of the biggest, the world is changing so fast. And it's, that's a problem because if we're used to like these long twitch, long projects where you come up with the result and you pick your head up, the whole world's changed and the question's irrelevant anymore. So you've got to go fast. And we know with fast, it's not going to be as perfect but that's why you have to keep your head up. I, I use the analogy, like when you're swimming, when you're always picking your head up to get air once in a while, at least I am, I can't go across the whole pool. Like in business, you have to pick your head up and say, what changed? You can't just keep it down in the sand. So quicker is better, but you need to make sure you pick your head up and looking around, you know, what may have evolved because I've seen it happen. Even last week, people put their head down, complex problem. They come out of their think tank. We have the answer. I'm like, no, thanks. Irrelevant. We've already moved on not needed anymore so it sounds like you're alluding to one of the things you touch the difference between linear thinking and exponential thinking absolutely it, it our it all comes down to the brain which again if, if anyone takes anything away from this read a book on how the brain works it's it's fascinating but our brains are very linear we don't think exponentially so you know to us if we asked you questions and there's all these tests that prove it about different size pizzas and which one would you think is bigger. We tend to look linearly. We don't think that way. Um, but technology is growing exponentially. So you have this gap where innovation and technology is up here and we're taking baby steps up here and the gap is widening. So an example of, of um, exponential thinking, um, what is it, 15 years ago, people are thinking, okay, what, what's the next innovation in the hotel industry? Um, well, maybe we can have like digital keys on our phone. So we be like, great, that's great. It helps people. Airbnb said, wow, what if we don't own the houses? That's exponential. You basically went from, here's what everyone's doing one step up. We're gonna go so far out there that it looks different, but it's in the same industry. Same thing with Uber. Everyone's thinking, okay, how can I, make the taxi better? Can I give like complimentary water? Can I put like a tablet in the back? Well, what if I just take Joe Schmo off the street that doesn't have a job and, needs, and they have a car? That's exponential thinking. And the larger the gap, the harder it is for us to close. And so we talk about trying to think sideways outside the box, but we also think about how do we keep up with technology? We can't just answer it by, okay, what's the next linear step? It's, it's, completely different. What Blue sky, what does it look like, you know, way up there? And the cool thing is their skills, which means you can learn them. Like, so I don't want someone to leave and say, well, I don't have it. I'm not an exponential thinker. Like, these are all things, if you want to learn about them, you can learn about them because skills are gained. 
you can follow processes and methodologies and frameworks and apply brain exercises to say, you know, I want to make a professional development goal by the end of 2022 or by the end of 2023, I want to be better at exponential thinking. You can do that, which is why I love all of this stuff is you can learn it. So do you have techniques or uh, steps in your book that helps the reader develop their their ability to exponentially think? Absolutely. And, and to be fair, a lot of most of them are not ones I created. They're ones where I'm sourcing other people that have already gone through this for me. So the book has methodologies for mitigating bias, like we said, from sleep on it to more hardcore scenarios and how you challenge your assumptions. It also has strategies for how do you think critically? How do you think creatively, linearly? Um, and what are some strategies that help you think exponentially? Um, it, it kind of reminds, again, it all goes back to the brain. They require you to like forget about everything you know. And then there's a series of questions you can go through that just take these assumptions out of the equation. Because going back to the, the Airbnb, everyone isn't going to think, well, let's use houses because their mental model is going to say, well, hotels need to have their own inventory. So you ask yourself, when is there a situation where a lodging company does not own their inventory? And that's how you think exponentially. What are some of the strategies for, you know, can, can you give me an idea of the, the differences between the strategies for thinking creatively and strategies for thinking critically? Yeah, um, so, and they're related, but thinking critically means challenging what you see. So a, a, a strategy could be get a different perspective. So you avoid confirmation bias. What do you think about this? And, and you know, being open to that. It could be asking yourself, what situation is this not true? So the example of like someone said, the more people that eat ice cream in Boston, the more whale attacks or shark attacks are going to be. Critical thing we say, in what situation is that not true? Or what else could be causing both of those to happen? Um, creatively is similar, but it's a little bit different you you want to kind of step out of your comfort zone and one of the techniques I, I teach is whenever you're trying to come up with a solution always come up with at least two of them you you're fine you're pretty good coming up with one it's usually pretty generic and but when you have to think of a second one it's really hard and the more and more you think about it you have to get creative for that solution to work and, and i've done it on things like puzzles before um, many times what happens with creative thinking, what gets you over the hurdle is there is some type of assumption that you have that isn't true and you don't think about it. So an example, there's a, a, um, a game that you can do in professional development. It's like a puzzle and you ask the team to put the puzzle together. Um, no one can put the puzzle together and it's all about creative thinking. The reason they can't put the puzzle together is they have all these assumptions. So then we pause and we say, okay, list out all your assumptions about the puzzle. And it's fascinating. They're like, there's four corners. That's an assumption. All of the pieces that have color are face up. And so they write all these out and then you say, okay, now go take a step back, challenge those assumptions. And then you realize the trick with the puzzle is it's not a puzzle that's rectangular. It's like 20 different dimensions and it's actually 
some of the pieces are face up, some of the pieces are face down. It challenges your assumptions. And so the creative thinking is, why do you think you can't do this? Well, because all puzzles have four corners. I find the corners first. That's what I always do. Well, when is that not true? Okay, with this puzzle, and then it allowed me to, it allows them to find the puzzle and solve it a little bit better. So critical is, is thinking of different ways and challenging them. Um, creative is about understanding what assumptions you have and then suppressing them and you'll see the other avenues for solving it. Awesome. So <clears throat> for those listening that want to learn more about you, uh, connect with you, um, I, I'm wondering, do you do any coaching? Is that a thing? Uh, um, not for, I mean, they can learn about, so they can go to kevinhandigan.com. I, I do a lot of speaking engagements. I, I'm still an introvert, so I don't do a ton of them. I like talking, but I don't like the the build up to them and all that stuff. But I have a couple that, that I do um, blog series, webinar series. So they can go to kevinhannigan.com. But I also, I should mention, I have a full-time job at a data and analytics company. So that keeps me busy. Um, so if there are people listening that are customers of that company, Click Software, um, I'm sure they've seen me doing presentations for them and similar. And I, I noticed that there was a, another website uh, that you're, I don't know if it's, still go the the data, the data literacy. literacy project yeah yep so it's a it's a kind of a nonprofit think tank the data literacy project.org where we get people in the corporate environment advocating and sharing resources best practices free learning about data literacy so but even though it's for the corporate setting even if you're not in corporate world you can still benefit from it just check it out it's the data literacy project.org um, tons of articles about data literacy, about what we talked about today, free training, um, blogs, webinars, all that stuff. So, well, I'll have those links in the show notes and um, best place to get your book. Um, I would say Amazon probably because they've, you know, they think exponentially. So, um, <laughs> you know, they have on-demand shippers in like every country. So it's cheaper to buy it there than even if I gave it to you and I had to ship it to a different country, somehow Amazon, it's cheaper. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, that blows my mind uh, with my book, just shipping it to Canada, the the price of yes, shipping. Crazy. Oh my gosh. No, and but, people think we're trying to sell it to get more, more I'm like, I don't care about my Amazon ranking. It's cheaper for you if you just buy it on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, and thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And it, it's so relevant to, you know, really a lot of what I talk about on the show where I'm talking about uh, our, our mental health, uh, PTSD, with leadership development, you know, how we approach, you know, our, you know, how our brain works, really. I mean, when yeah. we're talking about mental health and neuroscience of PTSD, man, what a challenging our assumptions and understanding how our brain thinks and how our brains are wired is so critical to, you know, our mental health. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. Uh, well, thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.